time for our journey to begin. You walk through our forests, yet you remain a mystery. What are you? Why do you hide? In the land we call wilderness, there lives a creature that has become one with legend. Hi, Sasquatch. Come on down. At the moment, it's about to have an unpleasant encounter with the self-styled masters of the wilderness, man. But there's this other thing that they call a chupacana, chupacana. It's some kind of flying thing that can fly 60 miles an hour and pick up a cow. Now, I think what happened there, I think one of these space guys came down to Earth and one of their pets got away. It makes sense to me. Welcome to the roller coaster over, under, and through the brilliant mind that is Cliff Barakman. You may think you know something, but this guy right here. will change the way you think about Bigfoot. And if you're smart, you'll let him help change the way you think about life. Pete Cliff. recipient it is i the red dragon the bhc clinton your host matt's also here i just uh i'm gonna kick in the intro thanks so much for listening to okay talk i want to thank all of the one person who within last week to this week has gone into itunes and positively reviewed the show that person has made a huge difference Thanks, Mom. Tonight on the show, and this guy doesn't need any introduction, but I will try to introduce him. His name is Cliff Barrickman. You know him as the cool person on Finding Bigfoot and one of the nicest people that I know, I think that you will find in this interview. It's kind of hard not to feel the love from Cliff. He is a very positive guy, musician, big music fan, a man of many talents and a man of many interests. And it's always cool to talk to somebody who is boxed in because of what they do about 
other stuff. So I'm very excited for you to get to hear our interview with Cliff. I wanted to spend one moment pumping a project. As many of you now know, the Small Town Monsters crew, headed by Seth Breedlove of the Sasswat Podcast, is about to release their second movie in the Small Town Monsters series, Beast of Whitehall. But moreover, there is about to be a Kickstarter campaign launched for The Beast of Boggy Creek, which is really the big production in all of this. It's going to be bigger, bolder, badder, louder, faster, boggier. Lyle Blackburn is involved in the project quite heavily. And there is a Kickstarter campaign that begins very soon as of production of this podcast I was last informed that like January 31st I may be wrong if I am wrong blame Seth because that's what he texted me so anyway I'm really excited for you guys to get to see Beast of Whitehall it's amazing and I'm really excited to see where the small town monsters crew takes their next adventure which will take place in Falk, Arkansas. Please be on the lookout for that. And honestly, please be more on the lookout for that than you are on the lookout for going and giving us a positive review or a negative review or any kind of rating at all. We know how difficult that is for people. I kid, I just... Send me an email. OKTalkPodcast at gmail.com with your questions, concerns, and what have yous. Any negative feedback will be dismissed thoroughly. Find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at OK Talk Show. And I also want to give a little shout out to my buddies over at Into the Fray. What up, what up, what up? You know who you are. If you're not listening to that show, I don't know why you're listening to this one. But without further ado, I introduce to you the star of Finding Bigfoot, Cliff Barrickman. Visit his website at cliffbarrickman.com. He's on Facebook. He's on Twitter. He's really active in social media. And as you'll come to find, he's quite opinionated. We were able to catch up with Cliff at his hippie haven in Portland, Oregon, Saturday night before he jet-setted off to yet another location for more Finding Bigfoots via the miracle of telephonic communication. Okay. Just say hello. Hello, is this uh, Matt? This is Matt. How are you, Cliff? Okay, very good. Doing all right. Thank you very much. Very nice to meet you. you. Nice being met by you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Cliff. We generally just ease into these pretty informally and uh, then, you know, kind of go back and put a... Cliff is a superhuman person with a great website, (laughs) penchant for Bigfoot and whatever after the fact. So... So you're packing. You're about to head out. Can you divulge the location of your next filming? I think I have an idea where it may be. Actually, I can. I even put it out on Twitter today because we're uh, we're round and try, we're trying to round people up to go to the town hall meeting. So um, yeah, we're going to be headed out to uh, Mississippi next, which mm-hmm. is a state we've not gone to yet. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I saw that uh, Mr. Moneymaker was 
making references on Twitter to how someone across the bar at a tavern in Mississippi was looking at him, and he was like, yes, I am Matt Moneymaker. Come and say hello. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, sure. Yeah, Matt, Matt can be like that sometimes. Or, or, that wasn't a or, shot at him. I just saw that he was giving away that you guys are in Mississippi. So, you know, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've heard the old uh, the old adage that there's uh, there's not a lot of money in big footing. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's probably true. <laughs> so I, I kind of have the feeling like you've reached like the pantheon of bigfootery because basically you just get to jet set all over the place. I mean, last weekend you're in Florida at Lauren Coleman's yeah. crypto uh, conference, and you know, yeah, I suppose that if if money were my goal, I would have nowhere to go after this because I make a good living. You know, I'm not rich. I'm not a millionaire. I never will be. But um, at the same time, money is not really the goal. I'm doing this because this is what I'd be doing anyway. And this has just it afforded me an opportunity to pop all over the world, basically, and do my favorite activity. It's really, it's really awesome, and it's amazing how far the show has come in terms of production value, in terms of... And I wonder if this is a lot about, like, drone cameras or whatever, but, I mean, that first season, the first episode... The uh, Squatch Wars, where you guys were in Canada and uh, Bobo and Renee were in the United States. I mean, some of the places, the locations, the shots, you and Matt heading across the lake on that boat. It's really turned into a a beautiful look at these locations that you guys are getting to scout. Right. Well, of course, that uh, when Matt and I are in the speedboat going across Harrison Lake like that, that was take. Uh, we were being chased by a helicopter. Is that all helicopter? Okay. See, I wondered how much of uh, how much you guys use the helicopter, or how much drones had replaced those. Well, you know, drones haven't replaced them so much. I mean, last last couple of seasons, we had a couple of days with drones. One was even featured as a search technique one night in, right. in Oregon. But um, but the FAA and their utter lack of wisdom and and stupidity, in my opinion, has made it completely illegal to earn any amount of money whatsoever with a drone. You can't use a drone for any commercial enterprise, even if no money exchanges hands whatsoever. Um, in fact, one guy who had a, had drone footage on his YouTube website that he happened to have ads on, and he made a dollar fifty, I think, the previous year, got a ten thousand dollar fine slapped on him. Get out! Um, and, no, so that, and in my opinion, in my anarchist, you know, hippie opinion, that's a huge overreach of federal power. Now, of course, they say the reason behind it is national security, but it's actually national insecurity, and they don't know any better. But you know what? Um, uh, Thanks to anarchists all throughout the world who received, or all throughout the United States, who received um, drones this past Christmas, (laughs) I don't see how they can keep a lid on it, man. Kids have these things, and kids have YouTube channels. They're going to slap a kid, like a 14-year-old, with a $10,000 fine? Yeah, these things are ubiquitous now. And right, you could, right, and it's, it's not going to get any less. That's crazy. So what about if you uh, were a small-town filmmaker and you happened to use drone illegal. footage? Totally illegal. In fact, um, because a commercial enterprise is anything where money might be involved. That's how they defined it. And the reason I know all this is because I bought a drone to use for my um, Bigfoot Road Trip DVD series. Right. And uh, and then like one, I was reading the directions of the drone, and it says, you may not use this to make money. And I said, well, what is that about? And I started doing internet searches and whatnot, and I find 
that the FAA has made it illegal. Now, of course, they have um, since that time, and I think God, I want to say this was in June or July. I, I could be wrong. I'm not good with dates. But um, they did drop the requirements for a drone. Like, for example, you no longer need an actual pilot's license to fly one. Okay, so that helps a little bit. But now they have this, um, this uh, procedure you can go through that takes four to six months. Um, you have to fill out this paperwork. You have to register your drone at the FAA as an aircraft. You have to do this and that. And then, and it's, it's supposedly it's a free process. But the one guy online that I saw a YouTube video for that said he went through the process said it cost him at the end of the, ga- the day uh, 6000 bucks. So right now, as far as I can see, it's government overreach. And trust me, man, I'm not, I'm not conservative. I'm not even liberal. I'm radical. You know, um, <laughs> I, and, and like those other two um, political branches, the conservatives and liberals, they don't go far enough um, in, e- in anything they say. But um, so uh, uh, to me, it's just the government kind of trying to scramble to control something that they don't have control of. The only country in the world that I'm aware of that has these sort of draconian measures for basically cameras that fly. I'm feeling the burn from you, Cliff. Oh, you know what? Um, Absolutely, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) And and if there's anybody out there that's, in my opinion, any of the presidential candidates in either party, by the way, and I don't endorse either party, like I said, none of them do what I think is right, which is compassion and love. But um, if there's any person out there that kind of embodies what I think real change for the good for the people would look like it's probably sanders you know most definitely i wonder what his sasquatch policy is though we have i don't know but you know you know i know uh okay now this is a funny story um when bobo and i were on the streets of savannah last year walking around um savannah georgia is a fun town and, and we had a day off. we get one day off a week so the night before our day off like we got off around six or seven so we went downtown savannah and started walking around they have an open container law there so you can just go get a, a, a beer and walk to the next bar while you're drinking a beer right um out in the street which is a lot of fun you know because savannah is a beautiful town and beautiful people and it's just so friendly and anyway i run across bobo on the street there and he's talking to this guy in a suit who is an unnamed, I'm not going to say his name, an unnamed Kentucky politician, like a state-level politician, you know, uh, some legislator guy or whatever. And I I walk up, and he's telling Bobo all about um, uh, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul's Bigfoot sightings. Really? Um, Yeah, Mitch McConnell apparently owns a very large horse ranch somewhere in Kentucky, and I don't know where or anything, but um, apparently he has seen them twice. And Rand Paul supposedly has also seen a Sasquatch in Kentucky. So whenever the GOP um, debates have been on, I always go on and I, I, I tweet the heck out of it saying, <laughs> you know, if Rand Paul actually shares his story about the Bigfoot sighting, I'll vote for him. I promise. <laughs> Just incredible. Just kind of stuff up. Because it's, I'm kind of a rabble rouser in that way, so I, I like that about you. I, I think that um, now that we've already divulged um, love for Bernie Sanders. And um, even though I'm not a big fan of Mr. Turtleby, but I am, I had read that he had seen Bigfoot <laughs> twice. I just hope that um, you might find that a lot of the Bigfoot fans kind of tend to lean <clears throat> a different way than you politically, I imagine. Yeah, but you know what I, I find, and, um, and I could be wrong, and certainly I get a lot of hate, you know, on my Twitter account and all that sort of stuff, but whatever. I, life's too short to hate, and luckily we're all going to die, you know? But, um, but what I find um, is that 
once people, what am I trying to say? Once people kind of disengage themselves from their own identity with who or what they are, like conservative, liberal, Republican, libertarian, whatever, whenever people actually drop all of those labels, um, and I, I, tra- I travel all over the country in little towns, big towns, you name it. But once people kind of get over their own definition of themselves, we all pretty much want the same thing. Yep. Leave us alone. Let us be happy. Let us like you know. We'll pay our taxes for what we think is right, and leave us alone. Other than that, um, and so I don't really believe in the differences in this or that. Sure, there are some people who some people have different um, like moral leanings. Um, some people are you know against uh, marriage equality or you know whatever it is. Like there's moral issues involved in politics, but but by and large, everybody's about the same. And it's only the media, in my opinion, that kind of instills these artificial differences in it, in us. So we bicker and argue with each other instead of noticing what the evil people who run this country sometimes are up to. You know, don't get me wrong. I think very few people are evil, but the system in itself is corrupt and self-perpetuating, and they want to keep us distracted. Cliff, Cliff, I heart you, man. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, <laughs> that is not how I plan to start. And I love that it started that way. That's great. Now, we'll get back to uh, we'll get back to some of your hippie leanings here in just a little bit. But um, why don't you I'm a unifier, man? I'm not in division. <laughs> I I'm like it. Unifier. I like Everybody it. Everybody loves Bigfoot. Let's keep it. You know, let's just keep loving. Yeah, right. Right. So um, what can you uh, what can you tell us about the show? Where, where, where do you think you guys stand in terms of what is this? Season five? Six? I don't know, man. I have no idea. This is like the eighth time I think we've been out on the road together doing the show. Uh, but seasons are kind of this made-up thing by, uh, by, by, the, uh, by the network. By the man. Um, by the man. Well, kind of. I mean, well, I, I do love the network, whatever it's worth. I know they're a big corporation and stuff like that. And, but honestly, the, uh, Discovery, who owns Animal Planet, they are wonderful to work for. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I wouldn't just say that. Um, they are just lovely people, and, um, and they stand behind the integrity of the show and always have. They're not asking us to fake stuff. They're not asking us to pretend we heard anything. They're just asking us to do what we do, and they document it. So um, I've got no problems with it anyway. But um, the, on the accounting side of things, every time they go to a new uh, season, so to speak, everybody gets a raise. So I guess to work around it, they've renamed it like season 3B or 4A. or <laughs> I, 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 I have no idea about all that stuff because that's all higher than I am. Um, like I'm just this guy looking for Bigfoot, all that other stuff is above me and I don't have to pay attention to it. But it's been really successful. I mean, you, you can't, I, I couldn't imagine that you guys would have had the run that you had when it started. Um, and maybe that's just because I feel like, you know, in this world that we live in, people, you know, run through things so much, but you guys kind of brought the topic to the forefront of pop culture and you've stayed there, you know, and that's uh, that's really impressive in and of itself. I don't think there's anybody more surprised at that than the people who work on the show. Um, I, I think season one, after we're done season filming season one, um, the producers said, "Oh my gosh, we have a we have a hit on on our hands. This is going to last a couple of years." But here we are, five and a half years into this thing, and it's still going strong. 
Um, and I couldn't be more thankful. And, and, and at the same time, I couldn't be more surprised because I think it's pretty much after every, after we're done filming every season, we start hearing rumors about how we're not going to get picked up. But sure enough, we get picked up again. And so I just, you know, just kind of shows you the falsehood um, inherent in any rumor. In fact, you know, honestly, I started hearing rumors that this is our last season, like about three or four weeks ago, before the first one even aired. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> don't believe anything you hear. Don't believe don't believe anything you hear and anything you think. Just see what happens, you know? So how much closer do you think you guys are to finding Bigfoot than you were when it started? You know, well, let me ask you this. I'll turn that around on you and say, what do you mean by finding? Well, first of all, I'm the one conducting the interview. <laughs> well, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, answered appropriately. No, you know, um, <laughs> you're right. Like I just said that because it's the title of the show. I guess, like, where do you think that we are in the actual hunt? And not just the show, but the state of Squatch in general. Like, I know that Matt and I were talking before we got you on that we wanted to ask you about your thoughts about the NAWAC and uh, some of the other groups. Just where do you think we are in 2016 here, early 2016, in terms of um, getting closer to the bottom of the mystery, I guess? Well, I'll, I'll say this. Um, um, and if you find that I'm dancing around the answer, correct my course and put me back on, because I have a lot to say about this. No, no, and please, also, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, I, not, I not only have ADHD, I've got HD ADHD. So whatever I'm, whatever's distracting me I'm, is really well, it looks beautiful. I've been focused. But um, see, I personally am not trying to prove Sasquatches are real um, be, for several reasons. First of all, I know they're real. I think I saw one. I've smelled them. I've tracked them. I've spoken to thousands of people who say that they have seen these things. So I'm, I'm convinced they're real. I'm done proving it to myself. And there's an old saying that says, like, when you're right about something, you don't need to prove it to anybody. You know, right is right. Um, and even more importantly, I'm not trying to kill one. And unfortunately, at this stage in the game, that's what it's going to take to prove that Sasquatches are real. I'm not trying to prove. I'm not trying to prove it because I'm not trying to kill one. It, it, at the very least, it's extremely disrespectful, you know. And I, I personally would go as far as to say I think it's probably immoral to kill one of these things. They're sentient. They're extremely intelligent. They're very aware of their surroundings. They're the smartest things in the woods, and they may have language abilities or some sort of weird proto language thing, like they're building up to it, evolutionarily speaking. Um, and to me, that doesn't sound like something you kill, because to me, you kill something to eat it. And Bigfoots just don't look that yummy. So I'm not going to kill one of these things because I think it's disrespectful. But, and, and Bigfoots have just given me so much in my life. My life is so much richer than I think it probably would have been otherwise. How can I, and thanks to the species, off one of these things and drag it in? Okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to encourage people to do it. In fact, I will actively discourage people to do so. Um, and unfortunately, at this stage in the game, that's what science requires. A right. dead one. Well, okay, forget it. My, human curiosity is not worth the death of one of these creatures to me. So I'm not trying to kill one. I'm not trying to prove it. My goal is to learn about these things. Learn as much as possible because I think they are just fascinating. And as far as that goal goes, 
I think things are just rocking, man, because we are learning so much about what these creatures are, um, what they do out in the woods, their ecology, their place in evolution, like how they fit into things in North America and the world. Um, We have learned, in my opinion, so much in the last 20, 25 years, so much more than ever before, um, that I I think that the, the, the chase, if you will, is extremely successful. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you guys are almost like uh, you're, you're in a you're in a position where you're building, just continuing to add to the evidence, and it is really that's really what you collect, you know. Right, you're right. None of us, Bobo and Matt, the other two bigfooters, and Renee, even if she she says like, well, even if they do exist, perhaps we shouldn't be killing one of these things, you know. Um, but we're, I'm trying to learn as much as possible about them, so I can um, share that kind of knowledge with the public. So they can develop compassion and appreciation for the species. Because check this out, man. They are real. They really do exist. Right now, there's probably a couple thousand of them walking around in North America doing what Bigfoots do, you know, whatever that is. Um, So since they are real, a dead one showing up, either because some logging truck rolls one down or some testosterone-starved guy tries to drop one because he wants to be the guy to bring one in, or whatever the deal is. I don't know. Um, One will show up dead eventually. Hopefully, we'd find a naturally dead one, but that's almost impossible. But anyway, one will show up dead eventually. And you know what? That's when Bigfoots need us more than anything. So I'm trying to kind of slowly encourage this army of people who love Bigfoots for whatever reason, whether they think they're interesting, whether they re- signify some sort of like a proto-human, whether they think they're international shape or interna- interdimensional shape-shifting UFO riding whatevers, I don't care what people think about Bigfoots. I want them to love Bigfoots because eventually, when there is a dead one on the slab and all those theories are thrown out the window and there's one truth because it's right there in front of you, that's when Bigfoots are going to need advocates. That's when they're going to need our help as a species, because right now they don't need protection. They're doing just fine without us, you know? So I want to learn as much as possible about these things and share my love for the creatures with everyone so they can get behind Bigfoot, because someday advocacy for Sasquatches is really going to matter. Do you think that it's possible that they become extinct before we find a cure, or do you think that the numbers are trending upward? Uh, I don't know if they're trending upwards, but I think they're. I don't think that they're in any danger at all of extinction. I don't think that they have real high numbers. I would put the numbers at, you know, continent-wide, including Canada, maybe ten thousand or less. You know, seven to ten thousand or so, um, which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. Right. That's really not that much for a large mammal that has a continent-wide distribution. Um, but I don't see any reason to think that they're going extinct at all. It seems that they're doing just fine. I mean, the clear cutting and the road building and stuff actually helps them um, because it brings more deer to the area and more rabbits and other herbivores that they prey upon. So, and, and Bigfoots live right outside of town. They don't need these giant swaths of undisturbed forests like we have here in the Pacific Northwest. They need chunks of land that are connected to other chunks of land so they can move between them. So it seems almost odd that one has not turned up dead yet. Like you said, if they're, if they are living close to town, um, I mean, do you have any, I don't know if that you would even be able to answer that question, but it makes you wonder why that hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah, there's, I think there's a couple reasons, and you know, and that's part of the fun of the whole Bigfoot thing at this point. Since you know, since they're not proven, and we have, and we don't have all these hard facts about them, there's a lot of speculation. Um, I'm fortunately in a position to speculate based on a lot of experience and things that I've seen, and for lack of a better term, knowledge. But um, as, as far as that goes, like why one has been brought in, I sometimes wonder that too, because on average in the 20th century. And this statistic is from uh, Guy Edwards, who runs a Bigfoot Runch Club. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a blog that, you know, is a pretty good one out here in Oregon. Um, he says that on average, somebody claims to have shot a Sasquatch once every four years in the 20th century. Hmm. Now, that's quite a few. And, of course, some of those people are lying as well. But some of those people are probably telling the truth. And some of those people probably brought one down, too. I'm aware of a couple stories where somebody said they shot one and brought one down. One of the more compelling ones happened uh, mid-century sometime. I think it was during World War II, you know, so probably in the 40s sometime, um, up in Canada. I think uh, this man was a refugee, I believe, from an Eastern European country. And my facts are probably pretty fuzzy here. So forgive me if I'm incorrect about a couple things. But he was moose hunting. He was actually poaching moose at the time. He thought this thing was a moose because it was big and brown out in the moose fields and stuff in the willows. He shot it, brought it down, walked up on it, and goes, oh, my gosh, it's this giant man. And now, of course, he was from Eastern Europe or whatever and kind of new to Canada at the time. Apparently, Canada was putting people from that area into internment camps, uh, much like uh, in the United States. We were doing the same thing to the Japanese people who lived here. Um, so he didn't want to tell anybody because he was poaching. He might have shot a man. And then, of course, he didn't want to end up in a camp either. So there are a lot of individual reasons why people might not have brought the corpses in. Um, that's just one that kind of sticks out in my head. Yeah. And, of course, uh, for every other hunter who brought one down, they do look very human. I would be very, very concerned if I shot one of these things and didn't know what it was. And I looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, did I kill one of these things? But also therein lies a very promising avenue um, that we can not exploit, but uh, what's the word? Well, we can chase down some things here because maybe there is some farmer out there somewhere who killed one of these things back in the 1950s before anybody knew what Bigfoots were really in, in, in America, in, uh, in the United States, that is. Um, maybe somebody actually did kill one of these things and buried it on his property because he was concerned he killed somebody. That's the opportunity that Bigfoot researchers like myself should be looking for because that would prove the species and we wouldn't have to kill one. Right. Have you given much thought um, when, if, if that day comes, when it comes, when one turns up dead or somebody shoots one, have you given much thought to how your life will change when it, whenever that does get proven? I don't know if it'll change that much. I mean, I, I will look forward to some really interesting documentaries by Discovery, you know, Discovery and all that stuff, close-up footage and stuff over the next 20 years as they slowly get these things. But honestly, I, I, I Bigfoot because I like to go Bigfooting. Mm -hmm. um, I would be doing this anyway. They could be proven today, and I would still go to the woods and, and you know, and see if I can encounter one for myself. Uh, I, I, this is just what I do. Can you say what part of Mississippi you guys are going to? Well, I know that the town hall is going to be in Jackson. Okay. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming in that general area, but I'm, I'm not really familiar with the area, so I don't know. Are there a lot of stories coming out of there? Not a lot. I mean, there are definitely some stories coming out of um, Mississippi, and certainly we've had great luck in, in neighboring Louisiana as well. Um, so they're, they're in that part of the country for sure, but um, Mississippi's strangely quiet, and, I'm, and that's one of the reasons I want to go there so bad, 
is to kind of check out what's going on there in the culture that makes it so quiet. Is it a lack of Sasquatches, or is it like up in Maine? Uh, Maine is a great example because there are plenty of Bigfoots in Maine, but Mainers, the people who live up there, are uh, so insular, they don't talk to outsiders. Maybe that's what's going on in Mississippi as well. I don't know. Bit of a Bigfoot black hole. I'll have a better idea. Yeah. You guys are you guys are in Maine in the next episode, correct? That's correct. On Sunday night, um, we're airing the Maine expedition, and it's, it's, that's a particularly good one. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. I think Maine is an amazing place. Um, have heard some really crazy tales about. You can get way far up north there. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I mean, there, there's most of the folks, of course, live near the coast. Uh, but you go just an hour or so north of, say, Portland, Maine, and, and you might as well be in the depths of the Pacific Northwest or buried out in Canada somewhere because there's a lot of wilderness. I was sincerely blown away. And, I, and that whole corner of the country, we've done expeditions in Vermont and New Hampshire now and Maine and, and like you know, the Adirondacks and New York. And that whole area reminds me very strongly of the Pacific Northwest. Um, and of course, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so you know I love it. Yeah. Are you are you a native up there? Was that your? No, no. I, I was born and raised in Long Beach, California. Oh, wow. the LBC, um, buddy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, used to I grew up playing parties, and the other band playing the party with me was Sublime, and that sort of stuff. Like in high school, and you know, my friend was in in PE class with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a small little town for a big town. It's so, amazing. So was uh, was Bobo a roadie for Sublime? Yeah, yeah, he sure was. Okay, that is a uh, that is an actual fact, not just like Bigfoot lore. No, 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 that's an actual fact. Yeah, in fact, um, way back before the show, see, Bobo and I've been friends for a long time, a long time, and we've done a lot of nights in the woods um, doing Bigfoot stuff. And one time, I cruised through to Bobo's house and. You know, I called Bobes and I said, hey, man, I'm in town. We're, oh, come on over or whatever. And uh, Eric, the bass player from Sublime, was visiting at the time. So I got to sit down and, and jam with Eric for a while, which was a lot of fun. Was this... Uh, I haven't seen him since high school, you know? Really? So did you, like, so did you know Bradley? No, no. I mean, I met all those guys, and but we were just, you know, like... 17 year olds and in, in bands that like, like mm, I'm, my band's cooler than yours. No, kids are, you know? That's crazy. Yeah, um, Sublime has a pretty... Uh, Pretty nasty Scarlet Begonias cover. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, they one, do. it's one of my uh, faves. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. they're 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 a fun band, and uh, we, I, we I certainly had a good time when whatever tangential ways that I, I crossed their paths before, um, and of course, you know, hometown, home, rooting, always rooting for the hometown. Right. So, so how did a how did a musician from Long Beach end up traipsing through the woods in, in Mississippi looking for Sasquatch? What what, what was that path? for you <laughs> well oddly enough they're rather as deeply intertwined as you can imagine see i went to long beach state um because uh one of my guitar idols this guy named ron Eshte, um he was teaching private lessons at long beach state so i wanted to take lessons from ron and i had to get a degree in something because i wanted to teach elementary school for a living so um i went to the music school at long beach state and you know learned jazz guitar from ron Eshte, probably the best player alive as far as i'm concerned um but the music department was way on the other side of campus right and an upper campus where I was, I was, I had to take some classes up there, um, is where the library was. And I had this, I had this like three hour break or something between classes. And I didn't want to walk, you know, 40 minutes down to the music and the department and disappear, you know, the whole thing. So I just stayed on upper campus and I went 
to the library at Long Beach State University, and I would just pick books off the shelf in subjects that I was interested in, you know, sciences and stuff. I'm kind of a nerd, and I love science. Um, so one day I, I wandered into the anthropology section, and I, I came across the book um, uh, by Halpin and Ames, I believe, the two co-authors. They're bas- it was basically a collection of journal papers written about Sasquatches. Um, many of them were written from the perspective of cultural anthropologists talking about this art that it depicts that, that is said to depict you know wild hairy men or these uh, stone stone carvings of ape heads that were found in the Columbia River Gorge when there are no apes nor monkeys in North America mm-hmm. um, and then of course some of the papers are written by people like Dr. Grover Krantz, a physical anthropologist um, looking at the underlying possible born, bone morphology of the Sasquatch based on the footprint evidence and how the, the realignment of the foot bones happens to be exactly the same um, redesign of the human foot that would be necessary to carry a mass of their size. And I started piecing all this stuff together, and, you know, I've always been weird. You know, I've always loved, like, In Search Of and all that stuff in the 70s when I was growing up. But it's, I started piecing this stuff together and saying, oh, my gosh, Bigfoots might not only be funny and quirky and weird, they could be real, you know? And so I started, I was already camping and backpacking and stuff. So I, I just kind of started going to places where Bigfoot encounters have happened. You know, I started going to Bluff Creek, for example, in, you know, 1994, I think. And, and basically that set the hook in me. And here I am, you know, 20 something years later, drowning in it, basically drowning in the subject. Can, but, you, you, know, can yeah. you tell us or share with us your first, um, your first, full-blown encounter if you you know the first time that you saw evidence on your own or experienced something where you were like hair standing up on your arm kind of thing that first trip to bluff creek in 1994 i stumbled across very large footprints uh 14 and a half inch footprints in fact um they weren't very well defined but i was thinking oh my gosh you know like it was total beginner's luck you know total beginner's luck um and it's funny, I even chose a place on a map that uh, was called uh, – was a place where Bigfoot Creek flowed into Bluff Creek because I was trying to find the Patterson-Gimlin film site at the time. Right. Um, and I, of course, like utterly naive, had no idea where to look. And I said, well, I'll just try there. Why not? Um, and then later, actually about eight years later, I found out that Bigfoot Creek is named by the local native tribe because they say that's where Sasquatches go to hunt sealhead. So I, mean, I was in a good spot, and I've actually learned about several Bigfoot encounters in that general area since. But the first time I laid on eyes on something that I thought might be Bigfoot-related was then. Um, but I, that started a kind of a tradition of mine where I go to Bluff Creek pretty much once a year. I think there's one, maybe two years since then that I haven't made it down there for you know work reasons or something. Um, but uh, num- uh, just a, sh- a few years later, um, maybe around 99 or 2000, um, I was married at the time. I'm not married now, but I was married at the time. And my ex-wife and I uh, turned a corner and we heard something very large coming down what seemed, sounded like on two legs to me down the creek. We couldn't see it, but it, we just stopped and it, everything went real still. And, and whatever that thing was um, snapped a huge branch off of this very large tree that uh, made the whole thing shudder, just like a twig. And it blew our minds, really. Um, she actually, Monica stopped camping with me after that <laughs> for a few years. Um, really? It scared her so bad, but yeah, I, that was another time. You mentioned it a couple of times, and uh, I just wanted to talk about this briefly, is um, I, I think 
no matter what sort of modern evidence we find, either photos or videos or sightings or whatever, it's those Native American stories that are either from the the tribe's history or, like you were saying, anthropologists finding these carvings or whatever like that. I find those to be some of the most compelling evidence that's out there um, just because of the nature of how they told their stories. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I think without exception, every tribe that lives in the habitat that is suitable for Sasquatches have them as part of their oral tradition. They have different names for them, um, usually translating translating to something like hairy man or, you know, a uh, wild man or something like that. But every tribe um, has stories. Even like down in Arizona, we had the privilege of working with um, the Apaches. And they, the Apaches said, yeah, there are no, you know, um, no stories. Well, that's not true. There, there are no artifacts or anything that, I, that those people were aware of, the people we worked with were aware of the Apaches that depict Sasquatches or anything, but they all say, oh yeah, we all know about it. Grandma always tells us, don't walk in the woods and, and uh, whistle, you know, which is a very common motif because Sasquatches do whistle, you know, but mm. they're not the only ape that whistles. Orangutans have been uh, documented doing so as well. Um, so yeah, don't go whistling in the woods because you're going to attract their attention. Or if you hear rocks clacking together, which is another very common Sasquatch behavior, get out of there because, you know, we didn't just leave them alone. It's cool. So like every tribe... Every tribe pretty much has them as part of their cultural tradition. Now, of course, it's ridiculous to think that that is some sort of hoax or conspiracy on the part of Native Americans. It's absolutely preposterous. And that alone, that, you know, people always ask, well, where's the physical proof? Well, you know what? There's some cultural proof for you. Yeah. Well, you know, and they, we've we've heard, I think, a, probably a previous guest mentioned that the tribes typically, you know, they may have, they may ascribe powers to certain animals, the eagle or or, or whatever, but they don't tend to make up animals. You know, they, they, they'll tell stories and fantastical stories even about real animals, but they don't tend to make them up out of, you know, whole cloth. So even, even just that alone makes you, makes you wonder, like, these people have been seeing something. Well, and as far as I'm concerned, you want to know what's really out there? Ask the people who live out there. Yep. You know, and the, the Native Americans are a great example of that. And nowadays, you know, we have other people who live very rurally. And by and large, they all kind of accept that they're out there. I mean, maybe not all of them. And some people, of course, don't accept that they're out there, which is fine. You know, uh, I don't care what people believe. Like I said, I'm not trying to prove this to anybody. Um, I'm just trying to share my love for it. But the people out there who say they absolutely do not exist and cannot exist... That's where I take issue. Like, cannot exist? That's really saying something. Um, because they actually do exist. So, like, how wrong can you be about it? Do you tend to fall straight down the line of that it's just an unidentified ape species and nothing more? Or do you have moments in the woods? And I know you're a philosopher type. So, some days I feel like I find myself being like, I mean, there may be something to this whole they're alien thing. And then, you know, most of the other times I'm just like, it's just a gorilla type, you know, a bipedal gorilla that we haven't discovered. Or do you find yourself wavering in that since you seemed pretty freewheeling with, you know, you d didn't take a hard stance on it? I was just wondering if you kind of uh, in and out on where you stand now, now, I think Bigfoots are an undiscovered species of primate. I'm going to call them a great ape because we are also great apes. 
that's our family. Right. A lot of people take take issue with that for religious reasons and whatnot, and that's fine. Again, I don't care. But biologically speaking, it's all one big happy primate hominid family. Um, so I think Sasquatches are just an example of that. Having said that, um, I'm not so closed-minded as to think that there's nothing weird happening in the universe. Um, you know, I look at my dog, my beautiful dog, Sochi, and I don't expect her to understand algebra. I just don't. And there are certain things that we, being fancy monkeys, cannot be expected to understand, basically. So I, I think that there's some weird stuff going on in the universe, and there are very, like, almost assuredly other intelligences and whatnot that probably don't even conform to a corporal intelligence. Like, they, they probably don't even need to be associated with a body. Or I mean, who knows what the limits of the universe are if there are limits anyway. So, so, and, and I know people personally who say that, oh, no, Cliff, I've got messages in my heads when there were Bigfoots around <laughs> and, and whatever else. And you know what? I believe them. Why not? Yeah. I just don't think that they're Bigfoot-related. Yeah, like, I'll grant you, okay, you had this experience, and really, what else, is, what else do we have but our own personal experience? I mean, our own, like, our body and our senses is basically the interface between whatever we perceive us to be and whatever we perceive the universe to be, okay? Um, but what I do find fascinating is that these people who claim contact with Sasquatches, um, they're basically singing the same song as the people who uh, claim contact with UFOs or, you know, uh, the Atlantic pe- or Atlantis people or, or whatever weird sort of thing people are into. So I've kind of drummed up this idea, this loose theory in my head that whatever's out there, the the things that people interpret as Bigfoot speaking to them in their head are probably just the same things that people interpret with aliens talking in their head or any number of strange psychological phenomenon. I think that whatever that is, it probably leaks through the place where the metaphoric veil is the thinnest. And and they you know just I mean? they just happen to ascribe it to Bigfoot rather than aliens or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and frankly, you know, uh, it, it might if our little brain could actually deal with what the truth might be, it would probably blow our minds so much, and we may not come back from it. You know, you so go. it might be best for us that we can wrap it into a package as neat as, you know, Sasquatches or aliens or angels or, you know, whatever, Lemurians, whatever, whatever people have going on, man, that's what I think the weirdness comes to. Because, you know, if you put up your antenna, you're going to pick up some weird signals every once in a while. Totally, totally. So let me ask you a couple of, uh, about a couple of different thoughts in the community about a couple of different topics. Um, And the first one would be, the idea that Sasquatches are aggressive. I think that Sasquatches are potentially very dangerous. They're giant apes. They're, they're like eight-foot-tall, massive mounds of flesh and muscle. And if they get ticked off at you, you better watch out. Uh, but then again, check out chimpanzees, man. Chimpanzees are four feet tall, and they have like six to eight times the strength <laughs> of a human. Yeah. Um, so they're extremely potentially dangerous as well. Now, I don't think that Sasquatches are generally um, aggressive and dangerous. I think that they're very shy and retreating, actually. Very curious, which will be their downfall, I think, eventually, but very shy and retreating. So they are potentially dangerous because they are wild animals. 
Um, if I ran across um, a, a seven and a half foot tall toddler in the woods, I would be terrified at the potential danger there. You know, yeah. um, most people aren't afraid of babies, but if one was seven and a half feet tall, can you imagine the strength and stuff? Like, like whatever that is, whatever this, whatever that thing is that seven and a half or eight feet tall is, is potentially dangerous. If they were aggressive and kind of out to get us, I think there would be very few of us left. <laughs> Where I'm falling on this recently is the idea of um, a male that's either younger and tried to assert dominance in a particular group and gets bounced or an old male that gets overtaken as an alpha in a group, which is basically what we see with like silverback gorillas, the way that they operate in their family unit. Most animals are like this. You have the younger one trying to uh, get to the females. And I almost feel like if there are solitary pissed off big feet, that would be where they would come from. One of those two groups. Yeah. And I imagine there's probably some, some slight degree of, uh, mental disorder in the population, just like there are in other species, uh-huh. I guess, you know, I'm a, I mean, I know humans, lots of us are whacked, but, um, uh, I imagine that's probably true in other species, but you know, what it comes down to is that these things aren't mice, man, they're individuals and they have a collective experience just like we do. Yeah. So there's going to be cool ones and there's going to be jerks. Yeah. There's going to be ones that are super curious, and there's going to be ones that want nothing to do with anything and just keep away from us. So it, I, I, don't, I don't think Sasquatches are a, are a, are a species that are easily um, stereotyped. I think that they vary just as much as we do as far as their personality and preferences. Now you, uh, you've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people and heard all kinds of encounter stories the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was what are your thoughts about the angle that there is a good chance that the government knows about Bigfoot? Oh, I think they probably do. But um, I think that I don't think there's some overarching conspiracy to keep us in the dark necessarily. And that's where uh, um, I kind of differ from some of my more conspiratorial friends um, cause I mean, I mean, look at the government, they're pathetic. I mean, they can't even balance a butt. They can't even get along, you know, kindergarten teaches you to get along, right? They can't even get along and do, do their job. How can they possibly get it together to keep all these things secret for so long? So I don't, I don't, I'm not a big believer in a lot of conspiracy stuff, but I do know that say, for example, like uh, almost everywhere we travel, we hear about, um, people seeing mountain lions or even black panthers where there are not supposed to be any. Now, I think that um, uh, the reason that they don't recognize you know, Black Panthers or mountain lions in Pennsylvania is the same reason that the government, um, the powers that be, shall we say, are hesitant to recognize Sasquatches. It's an economic reason. Um, because if they admitted they were there, as many people in the government actually know they were, I mean, Mitch McConnell's seen two of them, right? Mr. They Turtleby. would have to... Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, I love, I love his fleshy sweater. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but they would have to develop a very expensive management plan, do a thorough ecological study. And my gosh, I mean, it's hard to get even close to these things. Can you imagine how long it would take to do a thorough ecological study? 
it would just be astronomical in cost, and it would choke these Forest Service um, branches of government because they're already underfunded. So I think it's an economic move. Like, you know what? Oh, and, and you know, like the, the powers that be that probably do recognize Sasquatches are there. If they're sitting around a table discussing the Sasquatch problem, um, what would be the most economical way to protect them? They've got it right now. They're not spending a dime on it. Right. And the Bigfoots are doing a great job protecting themselves. In your mind, do you think that prohibits the proof of it? Like we were talking earlier, if one turns up dead, do you think they're in some way that uh, there is a, a reason for them to to squash that? Um, uh, I, I will say that I don't know. I think, and again, I should probably say that to every question you ask me. Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> no, but, um, no, I, we're I, just, I, hey, we're talking where we stand today, you know, 2016. We're all. Well, I'm just having fun speculating. Right, right. I love talking squatch. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's what. That's all we're doing here. So. Yeah, but but trust me, man. I am not a bigfoot expert. I play one on TV though. But yeah, I'm you not do. a bigfoot expert, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I don't think that they. Again, I I have so little faith in in the power structure. I just don't think they can get it together to whisk the corpse away really fast and hide it from everybody because. I don't know. I used to work at an elementary school. You couldn't tell any, another teacher anything without the rest of the staff finding out. You know, yeah. I mean, people yeah. are people. They like to talk. But right now, the genie's in the bottle, and it's best not to disturb it. Yeah, it's free. It's absolutely free to keep it there, and the Bigfoots may not need protection at all. <laughs> Do you think that I, know, that... I know there are people in the government who are aware of these things. I've spoken to them. You know, I've spoken to rangers. I've spoken to Forest Service employees. I've spoken to them. I know they know, or some people know it's real, but they're not going to officially accept it because that means money. Have That's you, all. Have you guys done anything at Pikes Peak? That's in Colorado, right? We were, right. We were near Pikes Peak for our Colorado episode. We might even... I, I, I can't remember, honestly. That was a couple of years ago, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that we were pretty close to there. If you haven't been to Pikes Peak, there's a statue of a Squatch that's carved out of wood, and there's an actual warning sign on the way up at about mile 12 or mile 13 that says, you know, due to the high nature of sightings in the area, we're just letting you know that this is... There have been Bigfoot seen in this area. <laughs> Don't hit one. In China, um, they have a national park, you know, equivalent to like Yosemite and stuff in Shenonja. Um, and uh, there are a lot of sighting reports of the Yeren, the Chinese Bigfoot, in that particular area. And um, the Chinese government got involved and interviewed these witnesses extensively. And for the ones that they believe, like the government believes, they erected huge monuments to the sightings that happened at the location. Oh, wow. There are these 15, 20-foot rocks with, with Chinese characters that are inscribed and painted into the rock that describe the Yeren sighting that happened right there. Wow, that's pretty How cool. cool is that? You mentioned, you mentioned China. Are you going you gonna to take this show... International? They have been. Oh, have you? Matt's, oh, Matt's, yeah. uh, Matt hasn't been keeping up. <laughs> <laughs> I tune in and out. We have, we, we've been international on a number of occasions. Um, we're not going to go international in this next little jaunt we're doing, um, but uh, we've been to five continents now looking for Bigfoot, which, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, which is amazing. Yeah. You know, I would have never thought that would have happened to little old me. <laughs> it is amazing. When are you guys coming back to Texas? 
Um, right now, we don't have Texas on the docket. I think the closest we're going to get is this Mississippi thing. Well, I hear we're going to go to Arkansas as well, so I guess that's a little closer. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Ar- Arkansas this year? Yes. Going back to the Falk area? or No, no, a new, a new part, um, which is part of the joy of the show is not only have I seen a lot of different states, um, every time we go back to a state, we usually go to a new area because right. um, with very few exceptions, um, Sasquatches are not limited to one particular area in any particular state. One of the times that you were in Texas, one of my very, very good friends, well, actually two of my very good friends cooked you food uh, oh. when you guys ate Stanley's Barbecue in Tyler, Texas. Oh, okay. Very good. Very, yeah. I, I you know what? Um, you guys are sitting out, think- uh, sitting out on a picnic table, and uh, Nick, who is the owner, who's a really tall, skinny guy and a drummer, um, was wearing a cowboy hat. He he brought you out the uh, this big ass plate of brisket <laughs> and sausage and stuff. And and my uh, another one of my really good college buddies is his pit master. And that's oh. that's my hometown. So I was I was actually giving them grief when i saw them because they didn't even tip me off to it it was just like a yeah they're in town getting stanley's barbecue oh man well um the, I, if i remember right the advanced field producer for that episode ate at that barbecue place and it blew his mind and he says oh we gotta get you to cater and texas is is barbecue country i mean mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned when it gets gets cold i kind of imagine like texans gathering around the barbecue to warm themselves you know yeah um, or when like it's hot we stand around a barbecue pit and sweat our ass off or kind of never not around it. <laughs> anytime i can get next to a barbecue pit i'm into it <laughs> yeah that's, that's one of the things i love most about uh, texas of course is like their enthusiasm for cooking meat for an open fire man how, how do you who doesn't f- love that how do you feel uh you know, now that the show has got some renown, um, you mentioned In Search Of and those other shows that you were a fan of when you were younger. How does it feel to be in that stratosphere now and oh, do, being being that kind of person to a younger generation that's watching? You know what? Um, it weighs very heavily upon me. It, it really does because I, I am basically where I am today because of In Search Of and, you know, Legend of Boggy Creek and all those, uh, you know, schlocky horror, like pseudo documentary things from the 70s and stuff. You know, I was into it when I was seven years old or earlier, really. It, I mean, there was a college thing I mentioned earlier that really set the hook in me, hooking me uh, academically, you know, but as far as a Bigfoot enthusiast, I was there when I was five or six or seven. Um, and to think that, like, there's this whole generation that is watching finding Bigfoot for their, their, their squatchy inspiration every week. Um, and it's what's in, it's what's motivating children to get out into the woods with their family and turn off the Xbox for a while and stuff. And, um, that is a very heavy responsibility for me. Um, which is why I, I strive so hard, um, to be a, a good role model you know, to, to say the right things and to not like, well, I'm a role model, you know, it's, it's like what the, it's like when sports guys are, you know, um, under the pressure of, you know, children looking up to them and stuff, I guess, but at a much smaller scale, obviously, but, um, you, you are the at, Michael Jordan of Bigfooting. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, Bobo would probably give me a better name, but he's way more sports fluent than I am, you know? Um, well, but, can uh, I just say that that's one of the things that I really like about you? Uh, and and <laughs> I'm not going to say anything negative about anyone, but I like the idea that you obviously seem conscious of yourself uh, and 
the message that you're sending out. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why you're so likable, for sure. Well, I it's mean, also easy in a way. Um, you know, obviously, like when I get fired up, sometimes it's hard for me to, um, you know, make sure I don't I don't drop an inappropriate word or something like that. You know, but but I was a teacher, you know, for 14 years, an elementary school teacher. That was my profession, right. professional educator. You know, so. In in a way, it's easy because my classroom went from 30 kids to a million a week. Um, so I'm kind of just doing the same thing. I'm kind of like in uh, speaking about a subject I love with enthusiasm in hopes of lighting a fire of interest in some of the people watching. Um, and it's that simple. It's that simple, really. Like, all I'm doing is sharing my love of the subject and the creatures with the public. Um, and I think you can hear it. You know, I get all fired up and I start speaking too quickly. And, you know, little things I'd like to work on as far as, you know, my public speaking uh, ability and stuff like that. But excitement's hard to contain sometimes. And, you know, sometimes, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes I just go nuts. Yeah, no, but it's contagious. And you're positive and you just are self-aware of who you are. And that's a good thing, just compared to some other people that are on TV. I just like that. I would you. very much like to be a beacon of positivity and hope, because uh, we live in a very dark world. Yeah, um, the, I, I see politics as trying trying to divide us. I see uh, people being trodden upon. Um, I see people without any hope and very cynical outlooks. And life is absolutely beautiful, man. I mean, go outside at night and look up into the stars and tell me there's a problem. There's not. We just get so wrapped up in our little worlds, our little conflicts and this and that, that we forget, man. We're just a blink of the eye and we're all going to be dead. And that reason alone is enough reason to enjoy this trip that we have going on and, and see what good we can make out of it. The wheel is turning, man. The wheel is turning. Always. So let me ask you. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this from Matt for just a second. So you're an elementary school teacher. Obviously, you've got the summers off. And I was telling Matt before the show that when you were on the morning show in Dallas, which would have been that was like 2012. Uh, you were on our morning show in Dallas and I had just been watching your show that week. And when I got you on the phone that morning, I said, Hey, I was watching this episode and Bobo is shaking a tree doing like a reenactment of what a guy said he saw. And, and you are standing over there and you say, shake it sugary. And yeah. <laughs> uh, the first thing that I asked you on the phone that day was, Hey man, you're into the grateful dead. So you're an <laughs> elementary school teacher. You obviously have the summers off. How much, uh, how much hit in the road did you do? You know what? I, I would only go to the West Coast um, shows and stuff because most of my summers were spent bigfooting. So, well, I was going to ask you because you said '94 is when you found that footprint. Yeah. And you yeah. had told me that you know you were really into him, obviously before Jerry passed, which was summer of '95. Uh huh. So yeah. well, I was that's true. That's true. Not a big overlap there, right? Um, but I would. I wasn't. Well, actually, back then, let me let me think. Let me reset my brain here. Um, when did you get into then, the dead? Like, I mean, you're right there in the area. So, I mean, they had to yeah, be. Yeah, at that time, I was in Southern California during my first show. And, you know, I didn't care about the dead, never heard of them or anything like that. And my friends dragged me to a show at uh, the L.A. Coliseum. 
<laughs> um, that must have been, I'm guessing, be 89 to 91, somewhere in there. Uh-huh. I don't really know. I don't remember. But, you know, for the more um, data-driven deadheads, I'm sure they can look that up and let me know. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and, and I, once I saw what was going on, because I've heard a lot of the, well, not, not a lot. I've heard some of the dead albums, which, you know, are kind of dry in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, Wake of the Floods, really dry, for example, and stuff. Um, but seeing them live... Uh, well, that's where it's at, man, because there's interplay amongst the mus- musicians, there's these long extended jams, there's uh, things that they do one show but don't do another, and and that's when I realized, oh man, The Dead is really about live music, which is also part of my draw for jazz, you know, right. major in jazz guitar, basically. Um, and that's when I realized, oh man, you've got to see these guys live to appreciate it. You can't appreciate them on an album. Um, unless of course it's a live album, like, uh, without a net or something like that, which right. is probably my favorite dead album because it is live. Um, and, and so I started going to shows and I think between that LA Coliseum show and when Jerry died in August in 95, I think I tallied it up one time. It was like 25 or 30 shows that I somehow managed to catch. That's pretty good. That's awesome. All West coast and Vegas, of course. I went to Vegas a number of times. Oh yes. Nothing like a jam band weekend in Vegas. See, yeah, I, and I the just way they timed it too, like the lightning storms behind the stage and the rain that would pop up <laughs> in the second set or whatever. It's just mind blowing. So you saw that this summer during the fiftieth uh, anniversary shows that they said that the Grateful Dead bought that rainbow. Did you see that? <laughs> Did you see that little leak? Somebody said it as a joke, like that. You know, the promoter—I can't remember his name or whatever—of the event he was like. That rainbow cost me 50 grand and that like people actually took that and ran with it. And then Bill Walton had a lot of fun with it when he was doing some radio hits that week. Yeah. People are silly. They'll believe whatever they want to believe, which is cool. You know, um, I did catch the first, I mean, I, I did, I couldn't make it out to the shows cause I thought I was going to be on the road and whatever else. And, um, and actually because of a family emergency this summer, I wouldn't have been able to go anyway, but I did catch one of the shows, the first one on pay-per-view. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I think uh, they, they played very well and very clean. And Trey, of course, didn't try to be Jerry Garcia, which I think um, was great because he's, you know, you can hear echoes of Jerry in his playing anyway, which is close enough. He just played the songs as he would anyway. And he is such a tasteful and talented musician. You know, a lot of people don't like Fish for whatever reason, but you cannot tell me that those guys are not amazing musicians all every one of those guys just is phenomenal on their instrument yeah i'm uh one of my favorite things about trey is his diversity in terms of you know he'll well hell i mean he conducted the new york symphony i mean mm-hmm, the guy mm-hmm. is really in you know he got me into Django, um Django reinhold uh Reinhardt. Reinhardt uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I was all of a sudden I was seeing Judge Reinhold um, in my head. <laughs> like I couldn't get that out. I felt the same way about Jerry, you know, because I grew up in Texas and was around country music back when country was country, but it was also country still, you know, to a younger kid. And then to uh, grow up and kind of start digging into the Garcia Grisman stuff and really hearing mm-hmm. his almost Americana slash hillbilly mountain music that they were bringing. And uh, I'll tell you what, one thing that was amazing was my wife and I stayed in Virginia city. We've driven to the West coast two different times. We actually got married at the gorge. So, I mean, (laughs) I love it out there. The West is the best, (laughs) but we were driving uh, 
and just randomly were like, hey, let's go to Virginia City. And there's a place in Virginia City called the Red Dog Saloon. And it's interesting because there's one other Red Dog Saloon that's in uh, Alaska. And Mm -hmm. I'd been in there before. And it's a really fun little like quirky place. And they actually were kind of connected. It's not like a chain or anything, but they're aware of each other. But the Red Dog Saloon in Virginia City had all these posters, like original posters from mid 60s, like beatnik posters. And I saw Jerry's name popping up on him. And I started talking to the bartender and that area in Virginia City. Like that was like a little musical haven where those guys would all leave the city and go up to Virginia City and hang out on the mountain all weekend and throw down and play guitar and play music. And and that that was one of the places where they started playing together for the first time. Like this is like pre-Warlock stuff. Which I just oh, thought, really? yeah, which I just thought was amazing to just be in Virginia City and want to go to Virginia City because of ghost adventures, and then to wind up in a bar where Jerry Garcia was like cutting his teeth when he was fifteen. It was just <laughs> really cool. Well, yeah, and and the music back in that general area of the country is is just so authentic and such culturally rich in Americana. And you can really hear that in the Grateful Dead through all their stuff, you know, yeah, Uh, even some of their more out there stuff. um, You can hear that there's this seed of Americana that permeates all of their music. And it's you hear the echoes of history in it. And I think that's one of the draws of the band in general. Yeah, I definitely I kind of got my dad for his birthday present. He's an old country guy. And I put together a pizza tapes ish Jerry Garcia, Grisman, More Country, and you know, all these old country songs that a lot of the people that are in this area know have no idea that, you know, the Grateful Dead have been kicking those tunes out for fifteen years live, you know, El Paso right. and you know, the list goes on. Mama tried, you know, people are just yeah. kind of blown away whenever they hear that because they just get in their head like, oh, it's hippies, whatever those well, hippies you know, like are. going down the road feeling bad. Yep. Um, that song's not even trademarked because it's traditional. Yeah, I, I love seeing the traditional in terms of the artist. Whenever the artist is labeled as traditional, you know, and the it's dead an play song. a ton of those kind of tunes. And Fish does a lot of that same thing. That's uh. That's the other thing is, you know, they have a song called Big, Big Black Furry Creatures from Mars, and it's like as heavy of heavy, fast metal as it could get. And then, but generally people think, oh, it's hippie, hippie music, it's holding yeah. hands well, and spinning around. Didn't give it a try, you know, because if you listen, it's it's just darn good music is the thing. And, you know, another aspect of Americana and particularly country music, too, um, and of course, country, like every other avenue of rock, has been kind of van- or avenue of music has been kind of vanillified in some way. You know, kind of put a little bit more mainstream than perhaps it should have. But if you go back to the roots, man, the early stuff, um, an aspect of country music that is should be, in my opinion, uh, universally appreciated is the storytelling. Yep. Um, there, there's a story. Uh, um, 
of Charlie Parker, you know, the bird, Charlie Parker, the guy who basically invented bebop along with Dizzy Gillespie back in the, you know, early 40s, um, probably universally recognizes by far one of the greatest saxophone players ever to live. No, um, an African-American man. And, and uh, so he, he and his friends or fellow musicians who were largely black at the time would go to bars after gigs. And um, and they would see Charlie Parker like plugging the jukebox, playing country tunes, and literally crying on the jukebox. And there, and his fellow um, African American musicians would go, "What are you doing, man? This this is what what are you doing?" <laughs> and he, and Charlie like with with uh, tears in his eyes would just say, "Listen to the stories, man. Listen to the stories." So the 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 stories and and the art of storytelling. And country music, particularly traditional country music, um, is universal for the human experience. And I think that is super important. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, I, 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 Matt's eyes are glazing over <laughs> as I'm having a musical <laughs> musical moment with you here. But I Sorry, always... Matt, but, it, but for me, this is very refreshing, by the way, because uh, being a quote-unquote celebrity on a Bigfoot show, I am gen- I'm, I'm stereotyped to be one-dimensional. Um, you know, people on my Twitter account say stick to Bigfoot Cliff if I try to do anything oh, or whatever. And you know, and that's kind of insulting in a way because I'm human, man. I, I'm so multidimensional. Like it just blow people's minds of all the weird things I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so to do a podcast like this um, is, is refreshing where I get to go outside, you know, the, the boundaries a little bit. Because I'm not really one to live inside boundaries very well. You no, know, I don't think that you are. I mean, you did describe yourself as an anarchist, and you are a deadhead and a jazz guitarist. Well, big, Bigfoots are truly the traditional, not traditional, but the the the, the ultimate anarchists. They, they don't care about boundaries or property lines or or what they should do or shouldn't do. They just do whatever they do, and they're passive and peaceful and nonviolent. They are the ultimate role model for any anarchist. <laughs> yeah, and there's a reason why if you go to a quote-unquote hippie music show, you're going to see people who are the closest, at least visual, representation of Bigfoot. You know, in the fish community, like the tall hippie with the dreadlock, you're a wook. That's the term. I mean, just I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a I mean, that's a that's a common term. I mean, half of the crowd is it's it's wooks and the rest of us. I mean, uh, never go solo, you know. And, oh, that's hilarious. And I'm imagining that you kind of at least landed in the Star Wars generation. Have you ever heard that idea that that's where Lucas got? The Chewbacca. I've heard that idea, and certainly there there had to be some kernel of truth in there. But uh, for whatever it's worth, my understanding is that Lucas is on record as saying that it mostly came from his golden retriever. Really? Yeah, but then again, you have an upright seven and a half feet tall uh, Bigfoot-like thing. There's got. I mean, he was aware of the Bigfoot thing clearly. And a little known fact: when they were filming, um, was it Return of the Jedi? I think they were up in uh, oh, the Redwoods, right? Del, yeah, Del Norte County Redwoods, but specifically uh, Jebediah Smith Red, Redwood State Park, I believe. Um, when they were there, they ha- uh, uh, Peter Mayhew, who plays Chewbacca, had basically protectors, so he could no, so no one would shoot him, thinking he's a Bigfoot. <laughs> oh my gosh! I told Matt that this Halloween that it was sad because there was no way that I could get away with being Chewbacca. 
being 6'5", I, I would pull off a great Chewbacca, but there's no way. I'm going to rock a Wookiee costume because I will die in Texas. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard those words put together. Rock a Wookiee costume. <laughs> but you can totally see why. I mean, you you know, if I walked across the street out here, I'm liable to get, especially with open carry in town now, so... Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that that that's, that kind of brings up something um, about skeptics, how they think all these sightings and films are people in suits. How crazy do you have to be to don an animal costume in the woods, man? Especially in places like Texas where everybody's packing, you know? Mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest, everybody up here packs. I'm a gun owner. You know, I don't pack, but I'm a gun owner. So, uh, like, everybody's got a gun, and if there's not one in the window, there's probably one under the seat. Yeah. What kind of moron would dress up like a Sasquatch to fool people? Holy, I know it happens sometimes, but I mean, if and of course, if any of your listeners have done that in the past, yeah, I would encourage them to make better decisions. Um, everybody makes bad decisions sometimes, but please, guys, you're going to die doing that. Like that dude in Montana, they got run over by a car a couple years ago, pretending to be a Bigfoot running out in front of vehicles. Yeah, you know, you're going to die doing that. I'll believe it whenever. Me. I'll believe it whenever Bigfoot's caught wearing an an orange vest then that may be a hoax (laughs) well you know you know makes me wonder too like after bigfoots are are academically accepted or proven right are people still going to be trying to hoax like that like because i don't know of anybody who dresses up as a bear and goes out into the woods to fool people so i mean these are all questions i guess we're gonna have to wait to find out the answers for but my mind's always going i'm always thinking about this stuff i I like it though i like it i I wish i could be on a fly on the wall when you and Bobo have had a few pops, and you'll start uh, waxing poetic on the nature of the species. You were kind of even mentioning that that's how the Squatch Wars started, were you two? Oh, yeah. Yeah, over over a couple of beers. You know, um, I'm a big fan of beer. I love beer. I live in the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Oregon, kind of the beer capital, um, as far as I'm concerned, um, of this area, if not the world. Um, there are just so many microbrews in town. I brew my own beer. You know, that's not nearly as special as it used to be when I started, you know, 25 years ago or 20 years ago. But um, nonetheless, I'm a big fan of beer. And certainly when Bobo and I get rolling sometimes, or Matt and I, for that matter, he and I hang out sometimes like on the show and stuff. And um, weird ideas come out because amongst friends and a few beers, that's where weird ideas belong. For sure. Um, I'm just kind of special. I get to talk about weird ideas on on radio shows and television (laughs) it will it will be a little bittersweet though whenever bigfoot does get proven because like you said it'll it'll be at that point just another animal not just another animal obviously but an, an an animal that's that's now recognized and there won't be this sort of mystical or mythical quality quality to it anymore where it might be this pop culture phenomenon yeah i guess so um but then again maybe i'm wrong yeah. Maybe they are interdimensional shapeshifting UFO riding whatever they are. Big black um, furry creatures so. from Mars. Well, I hope so. You know, I think that would be cool. And and I'm one of I don't know. I don't mind being wrong. I, I kind of like being wrong because I get to learn something more. You know. Um, so maybe I'm dead wrong, and they're not a perfectly normal species of, of primate. Um, in which case, I think it'll blow everybody's minds. And I and I'm all for blowing everybody's minds. Before we get too far away from that question, what's your uh, give me a one or two recommendations on a on a good Portland, Oregon microbrew? Oh, um, I'm a big fan of Rogue Brewery. Um, of course, uh, 
Uh, and, you know, Deschutes is great. I mean, I think they're based out in Bend, actually, but it's all Oregon to me. Um, Ninkasi makes an excellent um, beer called Believer, which I'm particularly uh, <laughs> happy with the name of. Nice. They're down in Eugene. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many good beers around to choose from. It's almost hard to go down the list, you know. But off the top of my head, those are the three that uh, stand out. Have you been to that venue in Bend, the music venue there? No, I've never been to Bend at all. As crazy as that sounds, I've heard a be- I've heard it's just a beautiful town and cool people and um, good weather and it, you get a good mix of everything. But I've never been out there. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's awesome. I haven't been to Bend, but um, the Fish Open Summer Tour last year with two nights there, little little kind of intimate venue, like right in the middle of town. You can see like you know a barn in the background or whatever. Whenever the camera would pan out. And look like a really cool place. I wanted to go over that side of the Cascades for a while because a lot of really interesting Bigfoot stuff comes from that side. Um, but there's relatively few people over there. Um, it was only recently that we had the opportunity to go film um, down outside of Klamath Falls, um, which is one of the episodes that will be airing this season, I believe. Um, oh, nice. On the, on the Klamath Reservation. Um, when we made some excellent friends in the Klamath Modoc Reservation down there, and they invited us down to go Bigfooting on the res because they've had so much Bigfoot activity over the years. And mm-hmm. I had never heard of... Of well, I've heard very, very little. I should say. I was going to say I've never heard of anything, but I was thinking about it. That's not accurate. Um, I've heard of almost nothing from that area. And sure enough, when I got down there, I started talking to the people who live on the land down there. Bigfoot's like Bigfoot sightings were like commonplace almost. I spoke to two separate people, hunters that um, and young people. They're like late twenties or something like that, early thirties who had seen Sasquatches um, five and seven times, respectively. Like, whoa. And, and that's like good daylight sightings. They say, like, I see weird things out of the corner of my eye that I don't catch a fair amount. But, like, as far as put my eyes on one and that's a Bigfoot right there, five or seven times, depending on who you're talking to, like these two gentlemen. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, they're keeping it quiet. It's on the res. They don't want outsiders to know about it. But... We were so lucky to have the good people down there on the res invite us down and share their stories with us, which is, is so cool because um, I, I find that many Native American, um, um, uh, I'll say not populations, but tribes, the, the people on, on reservations are oftentimes very hesitant to share their stories with outsiders because not only do they not want people looking on their res because it's their land, you know, it's, it's their sovereign nation there. Um, but also they want to protect the Sasquatches and also they want to kind of protect that part of the culture Yeah, because, you know, Bigfoots are amongst the last things that like white people haven't screwed up yet, you know? Yep. And I think they kind of want to protect that in a way. And I totally respect that. But when an invitation comes up to go Bigfooting on the reservation, it's one that I will always take. And, you know, I believe that you've been there because you referred to it as the res. Well, I've been to enough reservations that it, it's just it just kind of rolls off my lips, you know. <laughs> I just thought that was part of like the the secret handshake of once you made it out there. Oh no, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm Caucasian. I am not an insider. Um, I just um, am lucky enough to have uh, some very good and close Native American friends, 
And um, I've met so many just beautiful people and souls on the reservations that yeah. it, it's hard not to feel like, I, I, like I'm, I'm welcome and stuff like that. But I know it's not my land. It's theirs. And I respect that. And I'm 100% behind them. The history is still there. And I think the more we learn about uh, the Native peoples, not only in, in North America, but elsewhere in the world, like the atrocities that were, were done against the Aboriginal people in Australia is just unspeakable. And that stuff was going on until like the 50s or something like that. And I'm not that familiar with the history, but when we went to Australia, I was just blown away. Like, like, uh, like gosh, there's something like they're offering bounties on 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 dead on dead people, dead Aborigines, and, and, and well into the middle of the 20th century. And of course, I'm aware of the genocide of, of Native Americans in the 1920s and stuff like that in California and that sort of thing. Um, but three or four decades late, and I don't know. I, I think it behooves everyone to look into the history of the native peoples who live where where you do, you know, wherever you happen to be in the world. Um, it, it it makes you appreciate wh- where you are. It makes you appreciate the land that you inhabit and the wildlife that surrounds. It just makes you a better person, I think to look into that history, you know? So I I would encourage you to do so. Definitely. How did you not mention Sasquatch Brewery, which is in Portland, Oregon? Is it just not that great? Oh, you know what? Um, I went there. I I went there a few months after it opened, and I walked in thinking, okay, this is my kind of place. And uh, I sat down, and like there was one Bigfoot cast on the wall. And so I asked the owner who was there, say, hey, man, what's up? How come there's only one Bigfoot cast? He goes, well, you know, we really didn't want to be like a Bigfoot museum or anything like that. We just kind of wanted to capture the myth and the feel of the Pacific Northwest, you know, and and Sasquatch kind of does that. And and I and I was just looking at him, thinking, dude, you're an you idiot. Are so missing the boat. Yeah, no, no, he's not an idiot. He's a, he's a business guy. He's a bus- He's not. He's not an idiot. I, and uh, and, <laughs> no. and I and their beer was. But when, last time I was there, I don't think they they were selling other people's beer still because they hadn't got their brewing situation, you know, all wrapped up. Oh. Now, of course, that was a long time ago, and I have not been there since because of my schedule. And that's down in southeast somewhere, and I'm in north. Or that's not in Southwest Portland. I'm in Northeast, and it's just so you know. I just haven't been there for whatever reason. You just turn your nose um, up at all those Southerners. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just it's a different part of the city. It's not quite Southerners down in Southwest Portland. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> just kidding. But, but I need to give them another shot. But when I was there, and they said, "Well, you, this isn't really about that. This is it's more about the spirit of the Pacific Northwest." And I said, "Well, that's cool and all, but you did name it Sasquatch Brewery for God's sake." Right. I was looking up the. Uh, the Great Divide Brewing Company in Boulder. Oh, they're great too in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, and they have the Bigfoot on their logo, their uh-huh. sticker yeah, that just four, says, "I uh, believe." Four beers that they revolve um, every three months. Uh, they kind of revolve through these four different Yeti beers, and mm-hmm. I've had them all, and they're fantastic. Yeah, they are. Boulder's such a great place. Yeah, the such owner uh, welcomed us there. Actually, we did it. We shot a couple scenes at the brewery itself. Um, and the, the owners like all behind the squatch and, and we talked about breweries and making beer and how he built his business and why he chose Yetis and Bigfoots and stuff. He's a really great guy. This has already aired. Oh yeah. A long time ago. Colorado episode. I think it was season three or four or something. I don't, I don't know. Okay. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to dust up. I had a baby like right in the middle of one of your seasons, not me personally, but I can't claim to be that guy, but, um, <laughs> yeah, um I imagine like if you had one, I would have heard about it. Yeah. Definitely. Bigger um, news than Sasquatch. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, has anybody ever told you that your dog, Sochi, looks like she has some ridge back in her? 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, at the dog park, we go to the dog park down our Troutdale quite a bit. Um, it's like a thousand acres or something. They call it the thousand acre dog park. But um, whenever she meets another dog, you know, she's she's kind of introverted like myself. And I know it's hard to say that, like hard to think that I'm introverted, but but I am. Um, I'm a quiet, introverted homebody at heart. So uh, she's kind of introverted too, I think. And I don't think that's just me kind of projecting on her because every dog she meets, she's very cautious about and not not scared, but she raises her hackles all up and down her back, mm-hmm. you know, it's very ridgebacky in a way. I had a, uh, I mean, he was a, a rescue dog or whatever, but um, I actually ended up thinking I know where his mom came from and she was full-blooded ridgeback and it's mm. crazy whenever you see that hair turn. But I mean, I looked at her and I was just like, oh man, she's gorgeous. I'm well, used know- to that big white patch on her, uh, <laughs> on her chest. I'm sure she likes getting a little nuzzle right there. Oh, well, Sochi's a rescue as well. Um, I, we actually found her while filming Finding Bigfoot. You did? We were, Yeah, we were on the South Fork of the Trinity River. I mean, it wasn't me. It was, it was one of our camera guys, uh, the guy who filmed us for solo camping. Because the solo camping segment, it's just the cast member and the guy, or so, and sometimes it's been a woman, but it's usually this guy. It was this guy, Tyler Bounds, at the time. Tyler is a good friend of mine. Spoke to him today, in fact. But um, uh, he's not on the show anymore. He's doing his own thing. But um, he was out. Um, he was filming Moneymaker out on, on the gig. And Matt was somewhere else at the time. And Tyler uh, pulled over on the side of the road. It's raining and windy and stuff. And he pulled over the side of the road to relieve himself, right? So he's, like, peeing on the side of the road along the South Fork of the Trinity somewhere in um, Humboldt County when we're filming the Humboldt episode, like, a year and a half, two years ago. Year, almost two years ago now. And he thinks he hears something, but he's not sure. He gets back in the car, just ready to shut the door, and he said there was a pressure change. He felt in his ears, right? The wind stopped, the rain stopped for a minute, and he heard a dog yelp. And he goes, oh, my gosh, that's what I was hearing. So he gets out of the car. And this is like a 10 or 11 at night. He gets out of the car, goes down the embankment, goes off into the woods, like 50 yards or something, and finds a dog, my dog, or what would be my dog, tied to a tree by a leash eight or ten inches long oh my gosh uh, just left there to die as bear bait because uh, bears are commonly poached in northern california for their gallbladder which costs about two three thousand dollars on the black market it's some sort of uh, aphrodisiac or something in southeast asia or i don't know what the deal is but they they use my dog for bait so tyler untied her and happened to bring her back to the hotel thinking what am i going to do with this dog and I happened to be downstairs um, having a beer at, at the bar, right, with uh, some of the cast members after shooting. I look outside, and I see a dog, and Tyler, oh, I want to go pet a dog. So I go outside and pet her, and I hear the story. And at that point, we didn't know we were picked up for another season. So I guess I said, well, I guess this is my dog. Yeah, that's ex- almost exactly, I mean, except for the being tied around a tree in California. I basically offered my dog a ride, and he jumped in the car. <laughs> Like, there was no turning back. There was nothing I could do at that point. <laughs> he adopted you. Yeah, I actually forwarded you a email with a couple of pics of him in there. And I think you'll see oh. the uh, the resemblance right away. They're great, great <laughs> loyal dogs. And once you rescue one, man, there's nothing like that. Yeah, I, I will always rescue a dog. And I, I love purebreds. And stuff. I don't care about purebreds, but I think they're cool and weird and interesting and inter- like fascinating genetic experiments. Um, but... 
I do like the mixed breeds because they are healthier and mm-hmm. um, they tend to live a little bit longer. And, and you know, have you ever noticed that like a lot of the, the mixed breed dogs like Sochi or whatever, because she's all mixed up. We got a DNA test on her. She's all mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they all kind of look similar. And I was talking to a geneticist about that and a uh, veterinarian friend of mine. And she was saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the more you interbreed the pure breeds, um, see, because pure basset hounds or whatever, all long ears and weird face, that's all the recessive traits in the genes. But once you start interbreeding them, the recessive traits get put aside, and those those dominant traits start coming out, and the dogs start looking like the original wolf they were, uh, they're all related to. Right. Yeah, so I, th- I thought that was pretty fast. That is really cool. And I, I thought it was really cool that, uh, you know, I started looking into, like, Ridgebacks and... I was watching this uh, some show like some show on Animal Planet actually where it was like matching. They were talking about different breeds and Lynn Swan, the uh, famous Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver, had a Ridgeback, and they were talking about how like if you had a Ridgeback, that would be like the wide receiver of dogs. You know, they're really agile and everything. And then I started uh, doing a little bit of research, and the the tribes in Rhodesia use them to hunt lions, yeah. not because they would attack the lion, but because like three of them would be able to uh, distract a lion enough where, you know, then the tribe could attack. And it was because they're so agile, they're able to like yip at a lion's paw or whatever, and then jump back before, you know, they could get swatted. They have like a lot of <laughs> yeah. cat-like agility. Yeah, they have a very funny personality, too. I, I used to date a girl that had a, um, a Ridgeback, and the dog was just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, man. Special. Oh, and I'm looking at your dog right now. It's, it's adorable. <laughs> but, I mean, what dog isn't? But, like, that dog is totally adorable. Yeah. He was... very, uh, the eyes are similar to my dog in some ways. Yeah, I'm telling you. I I was looking at your website, and I saw your little thing about Sochi, and I pulled it up. And I was just over here while we were talking, like, damn, that looks like Giuseppe. So I'll tell you, man, my dog is the funniest person I know. Yeah, they're so much better than people. I mean, I like people, <laughs> but they're so much better than people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. when I'm on the road, I leave her home so she can clean up and take care of the bills and stuff for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before I let you go, I want to do one more thing. And yes, this, sir. I just came up with this, uh, and I think this could be a fun game, and I'm not going to try to be crude here, so I'm going to use one word to substitute for another. But have you ever heard the game, let's just say kiss, marry, kill? Maybe the kiss, kiss would be replaced with a like oh, a yeah, sexual yeah. relations word. <laughs> marry, obviously, okay. getting into a relationship, and kill, well, obviously kill. So well, you're, okay, you well, are. I'm, I'm a nonviolent guy, and I, I believe in. So you, yeah, yeah, we're just kiss, all. Hey, man, we're just uh, we're sitting around the fire the here. List is my choice. Uh, you know who I'm. T- you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about your three co-stars. Oh. <laughs> okay. If you had to pick, which one do you kiss? Which one do you marry? Which one do you off? Oh golly, that's awfully hard. Mm, is it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't think you understand the depths of the difficulty of that question. Um, Yeah, I think I I do, but let's just say, you know, without it being weird. uh, I mean, I knew that the kiss thing would be weird, and yes, I do know the difficulty of that question, but I think um, I could answer it for you. Well, what I would do is I would set up 
I would set up those three choices in a random sort of bucket, right? <laughs> um, and, and so I like a, like drawing out of a hat sort of thing. And if I really had to go make that decision, the first choice I would make is to kill myself. Oh, man. So I didn't have to make that sort of Listen to this. He, he's, he's, getting an answer out of him on that one is more, <laughs> more elusive than the said Sasquatch. Well, you know, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to go ahead and say that it would be Bobo that you would marry because you've been friends so long, you might as well be married. And we all know that if we really, really were smart, we would rather spend the majority of our time with our best buddy than yeah. someone of the opposite sex. I mean, let's be Although, honest. Did you, see the, did you see the two-hour special where we did Washington versus British Columbia? Yeah. Dressed up as a woman for he, a search <laughs> Yeah, that was rough, man. That was rough. I don't know. He, he, yeah, I, I, I guess he would be the one to uh, marry, I guess. So. That, that was rough. <laughs> um, I didn't understand the makeup and everything. I mean, but you know what? You blew Twitter up that night, and I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of. I do love live tweeting the episodes because it gives me a chance to interact directly with the fans, um, and, and and you know I'm kind of a snarky, intelligent guy who likes improvising off the cuff and stuff. So uh, doing live tweeting is one of those rare opportunities I get to do that with the show. I so love there, it. so there's a lot of crossover because, and I was telling Matt about this. I think I screenshotted it or at least showed it to you. So that cross dressing <laughs> later that night or the <laughs> next day, somebody had tweeted at Zach Baggins, um, the guy who does ghost adventures on the travel channel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, Hey Zach, uh, just wondering what are your, do you believe in Bigfoot and his just one word response? No. And then somebody else, you know, and he's got, I mean, come on, he's got like 40,000 little girls following him around because he's a big dude in a tight black t-shirt looking all hard. And uh, Mm -hmm. so another girl comes back. She's just like, really? I mean, I just, why is that? You know, and he's like, "Uh, you know, 323 million people in the world think somebody would have shot an eight foot monkey by now. And this guy, who was clearly a uh, Bigfooter, as his like profile picture, he's wearing a camouflage hat and a camouflage jacket. It's just like nice. That's, one of us. Good. <laughs> that's surprising. Like that a guy who hunts ghosts for a living wouldn't even consider the idea of uh, of a Sasquatch to be real. And he's like, I don't compare that to my thoughts on the afterlife, pal. Yeah. <laughs> And well, you know, he should have known that he might be getting a little deeper than he wanted to because uh, because the variety of Bigfooters in the world, you know, you just mentioned two seemingly opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, the the, the, the camouflage-wearing, gun-toting, whatever guy, you know, which is totally cool. I, I, I've got a lot of friends like that, man. I don't, I don't discriminate on what people are into, man, at all. Mm-hmm. And also these little girls, you know, like 14 or 15-year-old high school girls or whatever who are interested in the subject, different ends of the spectrum. And that's one of the things I love about Bigfooting or, or ghosts, for that matter, or weird stuff. I love weirdos. You know, I, I love the, um, the, the gradient between both ends of the spectrum and how many people can actually belong to a community like this. Because Sasquatches, unlike politics and everything else, is not divisive. It's inclusive. It's inclusive in our enthusiasm and love for the species, man. 
Um, and you know what? This Zach guy, I, I, I don't know much about him. I don't really watch television, as ironic as that is. But um, this Zach guy, I've heard his name before, um, pr- probably should know better about talking about something maybe he doesn't know that much about. Because I'm, I'm certainly no expert on ghosts. I don't know much about them, you know. I've had weird things happen to me, but I don't know much about them. And I hear people all the time telling me stuff that is just patently false about Sasquatches. They couldn't be real because of this thing that I've heard. Well, I mean, how many times has that happened to Zach? Right, Somebody yeah. telling him that ghosts can't possibly be real because well, of some nonsense that isn't true. It's really interesting, these these divisions. It's something that that Michael Mays, the Texas cryptid hunter, said on this show was, you'll have these people who say, Bigfoot can't be real, you're crazy, but I've seen a Black Panther, which is not supposed to exist either. I've seen one of those yeah. running through my backyard. And so it's it's really odd that, that these that people who believe in something that, you know, for whatever, however you want to call it, is fringe, will completely dismiss something else just because they they either haven't considered it or that's just not the thing that they're into. Yeah, and what it really goes back to is something I mentioned earlier uh, tonight is one's own experience. You know, abandon all ideologies and everything that somebody else tells you to think. Go with what you experience, like the, uh, the stuff that you believe because you feel it or know it. That's the only thing any of us can put any faith in whatsoever. So when the stat guy saw, saw the Black Panther run through the yard, there it is. Done deal. People ask, like, you believe in Bigfoot? So, yeah, you believe in dogs? Well, yeah, I've seen the dogs. Yeah, okay, I've seen a Bigfoot. They're real. Yeah. Deal with it. That's great, man. And this is, this is the funny thing is this whole podcast is supposed to be about weird stuff that two radio lifers can't talk about generally on broadcast radio. So we wanted to start talking about a lot of the weirder stuff that we were into and and I quickly was alerted to the divisions within the Bigfoot community. I was really blown away by politics of Bigfoot, which I think are really funny that there could even be such a thing. But you're, yeah, yeah. you're, you're like perfect for this podcast because that's exactly the way that, you know, I feel like if you're if you're into something weird, that's cool. It just doesn't mean I don't understand. Like and not everybody that's into Bigfoot is a redneck toting a shotgun, drinking a bunch of beer in the woods. Even no, though some are though, and that's cool too. Yeah, I know. Even though, like, probably <laughs> the ones that are closest to me probably would be like that because yeah, I'm in Texas, absolutely. and I have uh, family members who may not be into Bigfoot, but they fit that exact mold. They just may not admit that there's a Bigfoot. They may call it a booger, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great name for him, a woolly booger. Yeah, I've pulled a few out of those out of my nose too. But <laughs> um, like, I, I'm not one of those people, and I I just don't understand it. But I, I'm not one of those people that needs to agree with somebody to enjoy their company. Yeah, totally. Um, and I'm not trying to prove to anybody else that I'm right and they're wrong. Everybody is just as right as you want to be, man, and that's totally cool. Um, whatever you're into, because it comes down to personal experience. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it, it, and that has a lot of different layers and a lot of consequences. You know, abandon ideologies is something I like to, to say a lot. Um, ideologies are what somebody else wants you to think. Culture is, is what somebody else wants you to think. We do it this way. No, you can't do that because, no, man, be as big and weird as you can. Go out in your front yard, dig a hole, and eat dirt for all I care because it's going to trip some people out. Um, everybody should be as as weird as as big as they can. You know, don't just eat a hamburger. Eat the eat the crap out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> 
big with your life because it may be the only one you get. So who wants to follow somebody else's rules? Yeah, man, I'll tell you this. I don't think there's any way that Matt Moneymaker and Renee and Bobo probably has it figured out, but I don't know if they have an idea of how lucky they are to have you around because you are like, I can feel your positive vibe through the phone line and the miracle of telephonic communication here. Like you, uh, you're inspiring. Your, your zest for life is contagious. And I so much want to thank you for doing this, especially taking this much time on the eve before you are jet setting around the world. Now, jet setting to Mississippi, those two words don't seem like they should go together in the same sentence, like whoop costume, like rock and roll. <laughs> Rocking a Wookiee costume. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, we both, we really appreciate it. And I know, you know, I know you have to jump a few hurdles and clear a few things. And it just really means a lot to us. And hopefully this isn't the last time we get to talk. I'd really like to sit down and have one of those Yeti pints with you one of these days. And maybe we'll be able to catch up. Oh, that'd be great. And I, and I sincerely appreciate the opportunity not only to come on and, and just, you know, again, share my love for the Squatch, basically, but also um, to get out of the regular routine of, of, of regular just old Bigfoot stuff. Like, you let me talk about music, you let me talk about my uh, distaste for politics um, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I know that some people will construe that as a political rant in some ways, but it's kind of just my distaste for it all, really. But then I, I do appreciate just being asked questions that aren't the normal stuff, um, like kind of superficial uh, um, surface stuff that I, I very often get asked um, on radio interviews and stuff. So I, I, this has been a particularly fun one for me. Thank well, that, you. that's good. We're uh, we're making a name for ourselves like that, Matt. <laughs> Shaking it up. Shaking the thoughtful it up. hosts. Yeah. In fact, I had to edit my music content, or else we'd still be talking. I'd be talking setless <laughs> construction with you if uh, if I had my way. So are you still are you still teaching? No, I can't. I'm on the road like seven or eight months a year with a show. So you can't even like you don't teach guitar at all anymore. No, because you know if you have a teacher, the, the most effective way to do it is uh, consistently, and that's something I can't offer my students. Right, consistency at this point. Do you take the guitar with you everywhere? No, I wish I, I could. Um, sometimes I take it, but when I'm flying all about, it just tends to get in the way a lot. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to hassle, you know, because out on the road, there's 16 of us out on the road making this thing, and four of us are cast members. So there's basically 12 people around making sure that everything goes smoothly and planning ahead. And, and I just kind of don't want to get in their way because I see them working so hard and making sure, like, I'm comfortable and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I, I want to make it as easy as possible for them as well. Yeah. So you mentioned this earlier, though, but I just want to make sure that it, the Bigfoot road trip, I remember uh, Craig Flippy was on uh, the Sasswet podcast with Seth Breedlove. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not yeah. that long ago. And I'm actually working with Seth on his uh, documentary, The Beast of Whitehall. Um, he mm-hmm. did I've been a lot about that out there in Bigfoot land. Yeah, and it's really cool. I'm actually the narrator. Oh. So kind of excited about that. But Craig was on with him, and I thought it was really funny because Craig was hilarious. And, of course, he was dropping lines about the dead as well. But uh, he was talking about how you were in charge of editing down all the filming from Bigfoot Road Trip. Is Do we have uh, any plans on any of that getting released anytime soon? I'm, I'm working on it, but I'll tell you, it's awfully raw at this point. <laughs> and again, because I'm on the road a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and this, 
I was home this past summer, but, I mean, but honestly, my father passed away this summer, so I was really tied up in that sort of thing. Um, I didn't have the time that I was I thought I was going to, and now I'm looking at going on the road for the next you know X number of weeks. But I do have the spring. I, um, I'm hoping that I'll have a few months off between seasons if we get picked up again, of course, which we don't know yet. I'm hoping we'll have a few months off between seasons to uh, really work hard on Bigfoot Road Trip 2 because I have some great stuff in there. I definitely want to get it out. And I'm speaking at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference this year in May. I would love to have it done by then, but I, I think that's probably too ambitious a goal at this point. So we'll see what I can do with it. You know, we'll see. Do you have any other big conference appearances coming up? No, not really. I just did Lauren Coleman's um, conference in right. St. Uh, St. Augustine, Florida, which was amazing. Um, that was particularly fun because uh, not only did they have some Bigfooters there that I, I know and love, uh, Lyle Blackburn, who uh, you probably know from that part of the country. Yeah. Um, uh, Kathy Strain was there, of course. And Kathy's one of my mentors. You know, She's one of the reasons I am where I am today. Oh, I didn't um, know that. We, uh, we had Kathy on and uh, were also told by Kathy that we... It was her most fun interview ever. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, um, she's she's great. Kathy and her husband, Bob, are very, I, I love them both. I Like, they're they're dear friends of mine. I, I don't agree with them on everything. I know Kathy's trying to get a specimen or something. But, um, but again, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I don't have to agree with people to get along well with them. So, so yeah. refreshing. So refreshing. Especially from two guys who, well, we met working in political talk radio, so. Oh, yeah. We're used to uh, we're used to people my way or the highway. <laughs> it's a change of pace. You know, you know politics is is like the the dark side of the force. You know, it actually makes you ugly after a while. Yeah, you know, inside or out somehow. I think. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, but if ever we're going to have a chance to really make a difference, and we could feel the burn. I would just be elated, and it's not just because he's from Vermont. Oh no, but but I think the I think the only way it's going to get better is it's through love, man. And I, I don't want to be like too hippied out or anything because I'm not really like that. Um, but it's going to be through compassion. It's yeah. going to be through compassion for other people and and realizing that um, politics or the economy or any whatever whatever word you want to put there. I'll just say politics, so, although it could easily be capitalism or anything else. Politics <laughs> is the tool of the people. But right now it's the opposite. Yeah. People are the tool of politics, and, I, and that's where things have gone wrong. Yeah, that's so why I think uh, that that's, why, that's why, I mean, even if I, I, I'm really, what pisses me off more than anything, excuse my language, is just the, the labeling of the term socialism um, which is almost like a synonym for compassion and that somehow they've turned that into a bad word where Donald Trump doesn't know the difference between socialism and communism, but you just string all those isms together because they're, you know, volatile words in our political system today. So, you know, the, the major tool and of, of Probably both parties, I think it's fair to say, because, again, I'm not a party guy at all. And I've said how many times tonight, I abandon your ideologies. You know, it's our only hope. But, like, uh, uh, the most powerful tool of both parties is fear. And what did we learn from Star Wars, man? You know, like, fear leads to anger, you know? It leads Um, to frustration. And that leads to the dark side, you know? Indeed it does. Indeed it does. Well, dude, we could do this all night. Um I, again, really appreciate it. And everybody check out Cliff 
Brockman.com. You have a really slick website. People can get your beanies. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can buy my bean. Like, I've got cool beanies. I'm expanding the line soon, too. I'm going to offer some other things, uh, trucker hats and uh, what is it, uh, those tape measures. Like, how nerdy is that? I'm going to offer tape measures. <laughs> that is nerdy. Um, but you yeah, could totally also nerdy, obviously but... use it to, like, measure how big Bobo was in comparison to a Sasquatch. <laughs> exactly. Well, tape measures are an invaluable tool for Bigfooting. They are. For scale items. So you can get Bigfoot Road Trip on the website. And, and you know what, man? I'm super accessible, too. You, I mean, CliffBerrickman.com is where I live. But I'm on Facebook. You know, there's a there's a site, the Cliff Berrickman official site and the Twitter thing. And, heck, man, I'm even on Instagram. But that's really more of a personal thing, less than a Bigfoot thing. So You definitely are really accessible. And watching you interact with people on Twitter is a lot of fun. We'll catch up with you again soon. And and if you think about it, send me uh send me one of those songs. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll do that right now. I'm looking at your dog, so um I, I will go ahead and just fire you a couple of songs at you. You know, I'll I'll send one have you ever heard of that band Save Ferris that was in the, real popular in the nineties? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, female singer. Uh, uh-huh. they, their big hit was um they did a cover of Come On Eileen, like a ska version. Uh-huh. Um yeah, she's a real good friend of mine. Um, her name's Monique Powell. Um, she's actually getting Safe Ferris back together at this point. She's going to launch a new tour and stuff this summer. But um, she sang on a couple of my uh, songs. So I'll oh. send you one with her singing. She's beautiful voice, beautiful voice. I'll send you um, some stuff that I wrote, and you have permission to use it for whatever you like, of course. Thank you. Know, you. Uh, on the air and everything like that. Um, so I'll send you a couple things. You can leaf through them and see what kind of pop stuff I like to write. So, all right. Do you, uh, do you know any of those, the Pink Martini people? No, I'd love to meet them though, and um, because they're all over the place here in Portland. You know, they're yeah, they're great. Playing. They're great. The, I caught them uh, in Dallas several years ago, right when they had, right when they were their first little national tour or whatever. And that Hey Eugene video just cracked me up. They're great. You great know what sound. The big hit this past year is um, Primus and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> you, you mean like from? Claypool's Primus? Yeah, like Primus. Um, they they uh, covered all of the songs from the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory soundtrack, like the 1971 movie. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm su- I'm such a big Claypool fan. See, Claypool and Trey and Stuart Copeland from The Police. Oh, Oysterhead, right? Yeah, that's the power group. And so right, here's, right. A, here's a really funny quick Vegas story for you. I went to see, after Fish uh, went on hiatus, I went to see Trey in Vegas um, with his, you know, big horn, the tab band or whatever. And uh, the Los Lobos were opening for him, and Michael uh-huh. Franti was opening for him. And they were playing at the Thomas and Mack Center. And uh, th- that night, Les Claypool was playing uh, in the Hard Rock Cafe, like in the theater in the Hard Rock. And so okay. my buddy and I are standing on the floor. We're watching Trey. And at this point, the Lobos and Michael Franti's people are all on stage. There's like 30 people there. And I'm standing there on the floor and I look to my left and Stuart Copeland is standing right next to me and he's wearing his drummer gloves with the fingers cut off and everything. We, <laughs> a- we actually offered him a beer and he was like, no, thanks, man. Appreciate it or whatever. But we thought that was so cool, right? Well, Stuart Copeland and Les Claypool were playing at the Hard Rock that night. So, of wow. course, Trey's coming out, right? Of course. Sure. Of course. Sure. So we're there. The show didn't start till 2. And at the end of the show, it's kind of winding down, and Claypool's thumping it out, and he's like, we're going to bring a special guest on for you tonight. You may have seen him <laughs> over at the <laughs> yeah, Thomas right. and Max Center. And everybody's just going bananas, like, oh, we're going to get us some oyster head. Here we go. And he's like, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 
Les Clay Poodle and a dude in a poodle costume came out and just broke break danced for like the last <laughs> two, 20 minutes of the show. No tray to be seen. Nice. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, man, thanks so much. And do be safe. Just sent you uh, four songs, by the way. Oh, kick ass. Thanks so much, man. Tell everybody we said hello. We are big fans. Go see what Mississippi has to offer. I, I can promise you all to do that. I'll be there tomorrow night. All right, brother. All right, Clint, Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, it was Cliff. A fun interview. And I'll, I hopefully I'll, I'll be on the I'll be on the show soon enough, so we can catch up again. You bet, brother. You bet. We look forward right. to it. Take it easy, guys. Thanks, man. Later. Bye, bye. Shake out the sawdust 